When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Buddy Holly, Ben Hur, Space Monkey, Mafia, Hula Hoop, Castro, Edzaliza No Go, U2, Sigmund Ree, Payola, uh, uh, Scandals, Scandals, Katie. It sounds like a breakfast cereal, but I guess it is scandalous. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of We Didn't Start the Fire, a song that's become a podcast that is a history lesson about all the biggest, strangest and most beautiful stories that shaped our world. Billy Joel drew our crazy route map. We just follow wherever it goes. Cold War hot movie stars, big dogs, dirty dogs, tragedies and triumphs. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie's school is out and Billy is in once more. Oh my goodness, is he ever in. Now we're talking about a topic that possibly Billy himself has had some contact ah. with professionally. The topic is payola. What can you tell us about any experience you might have had personally, Tom Fordyce, with payola? Well, Katie, slightly strangely, the music teacher that I had when I was 11 years old at school was one of those perfect teachers where he used to, for starters, play us amazing tunes all the time on his record player in the classroom rather than doing actual work, Good. which was my first exposure to the Beatles amongst other artists. He also saw it as his duty to inform us about the great moments and the notorious moments in musical history. Yes. Um, one of which was payola. So at the age of 11, we were taught about payola and Alan Freed, the DJ at the centre of it all. So today, as we discuss this topic, I'm thinking about Mr. Frey and 1F at my school in 1985. Okay, well, let's get into the nitty gritty of what this whole payola deal is all about. And we're going to do so with today's expert. He is Richard Carlin. He's author of the book, Godfather of the Music Business. It's all about music biz scams and skullduggery centered around the king of payola and Roulette Records co-founder, Morris Levy. Welcome, Richard Carlin. Thank you. It's great to be here. So let's talk about this word payola and what it actually is. Well, payola was in the crudest sense, the practice of paying or bribing record DJs to play certain records, although it was not always in the form of a direct cash payment. It could take many different forms, the famous $20 handshake, bringing in prostitutes uh, or other services, and uh, fetting DJs at record conventions, which is a practice that Morris Levy really perfected and really set off the entire payroll scandal. 
And what about the word itself? It sounds delicious, like a kind of pasta. <laughs> there were various synonyms like plugola. The jukebox industry, I think, came up with the ola. There was a um, famous jukebox manufacturer called Rockola. Paying for the performance of songs was a time-honored practice going back to vaudeville when you had so-called song pluggers who would pay to have certain songs added to an act. And many people might not know this, but in many Broadway shows, the songs would change night to night as different songs were plugged and paid for. So Al Jolson famously did that and also had his name affixed to many copyrights, which was another angle that would happen. A DJ would be given a partial copyright in a song and therefore be able to collect royalties and therefore profit off the popularity of the songs they were promoting. Yeah, that's quite an incentive if uh, you're passing yourself off as one of the songwriters. Yeah, and Levy specialized in this as well, uh, very famously in a song called Why Do Fools Fall in Love, which he won the copyright to in a poker game. Uh, (laughs) And uh, later on, it led to about two decades of lawsuits. So tell us a little bit before we go too much further. This is your specialist subject, Morris Levy. Who was he? He was among a coterie of people, mostly surprisingly Jewish, uh, mostly from the Bronx. There were a group of entrepreneurs who wanted to get into the music business, but the music business in the form of Columbia and RCA, the big labels, was very waspy at that time and very much tied in with ASCAP, which was the major organization for songwriters. Now, ASCAP staged a radio strike in 1940, which led to the establishment of BMI, Broadcast Music International. The broadcasters started signing up their own songwriters, and of course, the only songwriters available to sign up were R&B, country, the people that the mainstream business looked down on. Meanwhile, these young Jewish people from the Bronx came into the city. They wanted to get involved in the business, and they usually got involved either through nightclubs or through the jukebox business. And Levy, as a 10-year-old, was hired as a hat check boy. (laughs) Believe it or not, people used to bring hats to nightclubs, and it was a very lucrative business. And eventually, he became a photo boy. People would be photographed at a club, And then the photos were sold to them afterwards. And Levy ended up owning or controlling the photo concession all up and down the East Coast. His patrons were the mob. So the mob put up the money for him to establish a nightclub, which became very famous. It was called Birdland. Ah. That was an early club that championed bebop, which was the latest, hottest music. Birdland became Levy's kingdom. The first thing he did was he hired a pianist named George Shearing. Many of you may know have heard of him. He was a blind British pianist and asked him to write a theme because Levy knew that every time the theme song was played over the radio, he would get a cut. Shearing wrote this piece called Lullaby of Birdland. And very oddly, it was played about four or five times a night. By the way, Dick Clark did the same thing on American Bandstand. He owned the theme music. And that's why the theme music was played several times during each broadcast. And this was a way of cashing in to the point where Lullaby of Birdland is said to be the most recorded 
jazz composition of all time. And thank goodness it's such a good song. Lullaby of Birdland. Do, do, do. It's, you know, it's a catchy uh, trips off the tongue. I'm really enjoying already, Richard, our deep dive into these various characters in the music business in the late 1950s. Why is it, if Paola has been going on for so long, that it suddenly becomes big news in 1960? Well, in 1959... There was a famous DJ convention, or became infamous, really, in Miami. Levy was said to have spent over $200,000 on liquor, prostitutes. He set up a gambling suite where you could not lose. It was headlined in the national papers as booze, bribes, and broads. This was on the heels of the quiz show scandal, which is probably a topic you guys have dealt with. And so this got a lot of attention right up to President Eisenhower, and it combined two different interests, the ASCAP business interest, who wanted to stamp down rock and roll, because their argument was the only reason it was popular was people were paid to play it. And also the moral, you know, the religious, the conservative politicians who felt rock and roll was corrupting youth, and the only reason young people liked it was because, you know, in other words, it was being forced down their throats on radio. So all the big investigations, the congressional one, the New York one, the Federal Trade Commission investigations were inspired by this outrageous convention that occurred in uh, 1959. I'm really interested in this idea that it's not only that the government are trying to stamp out corruption, but it's laced with this idea that we need to protect the youth. And the youth can't possibly be making up their own minds and have their own taste for this punk rock music. Like, this is just, this is heinous. It's it's not even melodic. So obviously, they're just being led by the nose. I'm wondering if you can just backtrack a little bit and tell us a little bit more about this quiz show scandal, because I think that's the thing that alerted the public to the idea that strings were being pulled behind the scenes. Well, the idea in that was that supposedly on these quiz shows, the contestants, they had no idea what questions were going to be asked to them. And of course, it turned out that that was not the case, that they were being fed information because people loved seeing somebody win uh, and particularly to continue to win. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, not really that terrible a crime. But it became, just like a lot of wedge issues with the um, conservative politicians and religious figures, it becomes emblematic of something bigger. Paola also was tinged with racism. Alan Freed, the DJ at the center, who I'm sure we're going to talk about, was the first DJ to have an integrated radio show. He was playing both music by blacks and whites. There was a lot of fear of the mixture of races When Freed came to New York, he co-produced a number of live shows with Morris Levy, and those shows were integrated. Levy never allowed his shows to be segregated, which, despite a lot of the bad things he did, was one of the good things he did. And so this raised a lot of fear. What were the tunes, Richard? I mean, are there big hits that we still know and love today that owe their success to Paola? Well, it's hard to say that a tune owes its success to Paola (laughs) because 
it's not like a direct correlation. What would generally happen was Levy had a network of DJs all across the country. At that time, you have to understand there were thousands of independent radio stations and hits would occur around the country. In other words, a song could break in Milwaukee or in Pensacola or, you know, anywhere. Usually it was recorded by a small local label that didn't have the heft or the money to break it nationwide. And so often Levy would then license that song and then the song itself would be released by him nationwide and then he had the clout, i.e. the ability to pay, to have it broadcast nationally and then it would take off. But it, usually the song had took, taken off in some way organically, albeit on a local level. A famous example would be Hanky Panky by Tommy James and the Shondells a little later, but it's the basic pattern. It was a big hit in Pittsburgh, sort of accidentally. It came out two years later, a Pittsburgh DJ found a copy in a used record store, liked it, started to play it. It became a local hit. The Shondells no longer existed. Tommy James had already graduated from high school and the group had long since folded. But when it became a hit, Levy swooped in, bought the recording, flew in Tommy James, created a new Shondells, and the rest is history. It seems to me that this payola practice took the place of what then became and exists today as record distributors and pluggers, which is completely legitimate. And isn't it true that, to begin with, payola wasn't actually illegal? So when Dick Clark in Philadelphia was doing it, it wasn't illegal. Is that right? Well... <laughs> or, on, or in the gray area, perhaps. Yes, it skirted the law. I mean, the, the, the biggest scandal, in a sense, is that Dick Clark was deeply, deeply involved with all the circular ways of raising revenue. He owned record labels, he owned copyrights, he managed groups. All of those ways were ways for a label owner or an executive to skim money off of acts. You have to remember that acts were charged for all the promotional fees, they paid an agent a fee, Typical trick was the agent would book them for $1,000, tell them they were being booked for $100, uh. pocket the 900 and take his commission off the 100 So it was estimated that Dick Clark, the year he appeared before the Payola Committee, the year prior he had earned $800,000, which in 1959 money, I don't know what it would translate to today, but it would be tens of millions of dollars. And the only reason Clark was not sacrificed and Freed wasn't was Freed was universally disliked because he was a very, very, he took payola to sort of the most scummy end of the spectrum. <laughs> like he insisted that Atlantic Records put in a swimming pool for him and then refused to play their records. You know, he wasn't playing by the rules. Whereas Clark was kind of a, a squeaky clean, and he was backed by the National Network. And also he was wasp. He was a waspy-looking guy, clean cut. And Freed was Jewish. He was an outsider. And he was an easy scapegoat because nobody really liked him. Let's get more into these two uh, national figures then, because I'm conscious for a British audience, we might not know who Dick Clark is. Culturally in the US, Richard, he is a huge figure for many, many years, and his show American Bandstand is massive. Yes, it was. It, it was the longest running music show on television, I believe. 
It started out as a radio show. It really established the idea of a top 10 in a lot of ways. Clark became a major media mogul. He produced America's Funniest Home Videos. And for those of you who know that show and also the eventually became, I think, the $200,000 pyramid. I don't know how much money pyramid it was. Uh, <laughs> and I'm waiting for you guys to sing the American Bandstand theme since you did such a good job. On, uh, <laughs> I, I can't quite remember. It just it kind of went bandstand, bandstand. Yeah, that was I, the end. It was da 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 It didn't really have words, but it ended with bandstand. Yeah. <laughs> Do, does that mean that you and I are both going to have to pay Dick Clark? Right. You'll have to. Yes. Ugh. You you now because I sang that song, you now will have to pay a. A royalty. Thanks a lot. <laughs> it's a huge show, though, Katie, isn't it? And I imagine were you one of the American teenagers who who grew up watching it because it was the, yeah. the first place for a nationwide audience to see people like Stevie Wonder or Smokey Robinson or Simon and Garfunkel. In later years, that I've seen this clip online where he is talking because he keeps doing it into his dotage, where he not only introduces Madonna yeah. to a nationwide audience. There's a, a great clip when he's talking to Talking Heads, and David Byrne is almost monosyllabic oh he's so awkward Dick just keeps going it's amazing oh I know he's so unflappable also I think Johnny Rotten was on there John Lydon was on there Um, I saw my buddies Ron and Russell Mayle on there Sparks yeah he could surf those waves of awkwardness those monosyllabic pop stars that you know had that sullen moody foldy armed contentiousness he just kind of schmaltzed his way over it and is that one of the reasons, Richard, why he he seems to escape without too much further censure from Paola? When the hearings first began, Clark was the major target of the House committee that was investigating Paola, and it looked bad. He faced very heavy questioning. A lot of unsavory details were exposed. But eventually, at the end of the hearings, the head of the committee said something to the effect of, you're a good young man and you seem to be clean and moral and, you know, so, so you know, maybe you made a few mistakes. And by this time, Alan Freed was a major figure on ABC radio. Clark was a big figure on ABC television. And Freed claimed that ABC threw him to the dogs, at whether that's true or not. These things are never written down. You know, the mob does not write down on paper, we own Count Basie. But everybody knows that Count Basie had tremendous gambling debts. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, he had to record for Morris Levy. He performed twice a year at Levy's Club until Frank Sinatra got him out of that contract. And then he never played at Birdland again. So make your own conclusions. So speaking of unsavory details, because I'm now quite titillated by this idea, let's talk more about the excesses of Paola. You mentioned the, the broads and the booze. What other capers did Morris Levy get up to? Oh, Morris was the king of capers. There's no, no doubt about that. I mean, when Freed first came to New York, Morris had the idea of staging a rock and roll show and no hall would rent to them. So they ended up renting a hall far on the west side of the city that had been a boxing ring. And Levy claims that Freed mentioned the show only four times on the radio 
And they had advanced sales of over $50,000, which again, for that time was enormous. 12,000 teenagers showed up on the two nights of the shows, both nights. They said that it was so crowded that the ceiling was dripping sweat and it got a lot of national attention. And eventually they played the biggest theater in New York, the Paramount. And what Levy would do was look at the bands that were coming up on the charts, book them when they were unknown, have Freed push their records on the radio, and then by the time the show happened, the songs would be number one hits. So he was saving money on the booking, plus he was the first person to take 90% of the gate in lieu of a payment from the hall. So they ended up making close to $200,000 in a week of shows, which was the highest take ever at the Paramount. They beat Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin, who had made $150,000 in a week. That's kind of sophisticated payola yeah, because yeah. they're profiting in so many different ways <laughs> that, you know, people have this very simplistic idea that somebody puts a $20 bill and shakes the hand of the DJ and that's it. It was much more sophisticated. There's a lovely quote, Richard, from a DJ named Stan Richard, who was at a station called WILD in Boston. When he's talking about payola, he compares it to, quote, going to school and giving the teacher a better gift than the fellow at the next desk. And he says rather charmingly, this seems to be the American way of life, which is a wonderful way of life. It's primarily built on romance. I'll do for you, what will you do for me? As Morris Levy put it, the music industry is a pizza. You don't F with my piece. I don't F with yours. (laughs) He had a lot of great sayings. He used to say to artists, do you want royalties? Go to England. (laughs) That's so great. That's so, there will be blood. I drink your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. It seems that law enforcement, the FBI, was always on the back foot regarding investigating these practices. They were getting outsmarted. What can you tell us about that? One of the partners at Roulette was a man named Dominic Chiafone, whose nom de guerre was Swats Mulligan. And Swats (laughs) Mulligan was a well-known mobster And he was known to be a master uh, cooker of spaghetti for people who visited the office. But he also, from time to time, Levy would have to leave his very baronial suite and Chiafone would take it over to sort of police various mob disputes. The police used to put on a charity baseball game outside of New York City, a place called Bear Mountain. And the mob and the police played each other, basically. Chiafone would provide the potato salad. He was famous for his uh, (laughs) potato salad. And so everybody knew everyone. One of Levy's partners in the nightclub business said to me, every week we'd give a bag of money to the cops, to the prostitutes, to the drug dealers, to the mob. I mean, you could not be in the music business and not be doing that. I mean, it was just a fact of life. One of the other associates of uh, SWATs was a man named Tommy Vistola, a.k.a. The Glute. (laughs) He was an ex-boxer, and surprisingly, he became Alan Freed's manager. And it's not clear whether he was doing that to protect the mob's interest or Levy's interest in Freed, but in any case, here was this ex-boxer bouncer who supposedly was the business manager for the most successful rock and roll DJ of his 
time. And Freed's story, once the scandal breaks, becomes a tragic one, Richard. He is charged with multiple counts of commercial bribery. He pleads guilty to two of those charges. His initial sentence doesn't seem too bad. He's fined $300, gets a suspended jail sentence. But it's what happens to his career that seems to be the real punishment. Yes, uh, and oddly enough, while he was a pariah among most of the small labels, Levy remained very faithful to him. And Levy had an associate in Florida named Henry Stone, very outrageous man who lived into his 90s and quite a character. He was uh, the force behind Casey and the Sunshine Band many decades later. And so Stone arranged for Freed to get a job down there, but he basically was unemployable after the scandal and died tragically penniless and uh, totally sort of forgotten. Tom, the thing about doing this podcast, it reminds me of this dog I just once dog sat for. And I remember that you could take him for games of fetch all the live long day and he would have energy to beat the band. But if you put him through his paces with his tricks, he was sacked out after five minutes. And that is how I feel after recording a podcast. I just it. It just taxes my brain. I'm so kind of tired and enervated. And that's why I can't wait to have a big gulp of this. Katie, my eyebrows are now on the ceiling. Let's spell out for the listeners at home who can't see what you're talking about. We should maybe paint a picture. Katie, you're holding a glass of a particularly vibrant green drink. What is it? (laughs) Tom, I'm so glad you asked. This is my Athletic Greens multivitamin. And after a day of toasting my lobes, as you mysteriously like to put it, around the fire, boy, do I need it. Katie, I have heard about this stuff. Is it tasty? How are you finding it? Well, it's tasty, but it's also really convenient. I don't have to take a bunch of different pills. All I have to do is just drink this one beverage, and it gives me all the vitamins I need. Better energy, better gut health, and that helps everyone around me. And it actually tastes pretty great. It doesn't taste, you know, healthy. It has kind of a mild tropical taste. Am I getting a slight note of pineapple wafting across the table, Katie? How do I get my hands on this stuff? (laughs) Well, you can get your tongue around it um, because I have sourced a deal for you. So with your first purchase on the Athletic Greens website, they're going to give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D, which is crucial for your immune system, and five free travel packs. So start booking your travel tickets. All you have to do is use the code BILLY, B-I-L-L-Y. So head to athleticgreens.com slash Billy, B-I-L-L-Y, and get your mitts on this fabulous deal. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. 
All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. We're talking about the big spotlight that these congressional hearings shone on the payola scene. And that, I think, is what Billy Joel is referring to in the song. But what happened after this big hullabaloo? Was payola wiped out and wiped off the map or did it just go underground? Hardly. (laughs) They did pass certain laws. There were all these investigations. But oddly enough, after Freed's downfall, these all fizzled out. Morris very cannily, Morris Levy, hired one of the lead investigators that the New York DA had used and made him his lawyer. Forty years later, I was trying to get a hold of this guy to talk to him about Morris. One day I was sitting at my desk and the phone rang and this man came on and he said, I'm 95 years old. (laughs) I've had four heart attacks. I have a stent. I will talk to you, but you may not call me. (laughs) And then the best part was he said, my wife is making breakfast. I got to go. And he hung up. (laughs) Over the next months, he would call me on occasion and tell me, What to me seemed to be pretty tame stories. I mean, they were all things that had happened a long time ago. But he said that Levy hired him for two reasons. He knew what the New York DA was targeting, but he also was a good ball player. And Levy, as I said, had a baseball team with the mob. So that was valuable. He was a great shortstop, apparently, in his day. (laughs) So this guy helped 
sort of dodge the charges. But meanwhile, you talk about the FBI and how ham-handed they were. Another kind of funny story is among his many jobs, uh, Swats Mulligan was the president of the New York Electrical Union. (laughs) Well, what does the FBI make of this connection? Schiaffone is involved with electricians. He's also a partner of Levy's. Records are made by using electricity. Therefore, there must be some kind of nefarious kind of connection. Of course, a lot of things use electricity. Electricity really was not (laughs) the link here. The link here was the mob. But the FBI literally ran this investigation for several years. It would go for about a year. It would be canceled. And then somebody else would come in and say, hey, wait a minute. And it would start all over again. They just didn't understand what a record business was. The fact that you use electricity to record somebody had really nothing to do with the business. It's like, uh, you know, just the confusion between correlation and causation. And they they just got stuck on the correlation piece of the puzzle. What happens, because the music industry is about to go through seismic changes in this decade. What happens to the likes of Morris Levy when, for example, the British invasion happens in the, the latter part of 63 and the start of 64? Does he manage to keep his fingers in pie? Well, Levy was uh, a guy who understood a couple of very important things. One was the value of copyrights. He ended up owning or co-owning or even co-authoring the entire Chuck Berry catalog, songs like Why Do Fools Fall in Love, which had a big, big resurgence when Diana Ross recorded it as a disco song in the 70s. You know, many, many of the most famous rock songs of the 50s he owned. And of course, this led to a famous lawsuit that some of your listeners may know about when John Lennon was targeted by Levy for the song Come Together, which had the opening line, Here Comes Old Flat Top, which your listeners will know came from a Chuck Berry song. And it was really Lennon's homage to Chuck Berry, but Levy used that as leverage Levy had become, by that point, the king of late-night television. He was the guy who created the idea of golden oldies. And you turn on the late, 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 late show here, you would see advertisements for 20 hits from the 50s performed (laughs) by the original artists. And so Levy was a big player in that and convinced Lennon to release his rock and roll album through late-night TV, Uh, Lennon later denied that he, in fact, had agreed to this, although he did give Levy a master tape, an early version of his rock and roll album, and this led to all kinds of lawsuits. Uh, So Levy managed to survive in many different ways. During the British invasion, his British invasion group was, are you ready for it? The Hullabaloos. (laughs) He also rode the wave of psychedelic rock and bubblegum rock. And eventually, Levy was the prime force behind Sugar Hill Records. What? Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. The owners of Sugar Hill, the Robinsons, Sylvia had been a singer of Mickey and Sylvia, for those of you who remember the 50s. She was a very canny musician yes. and businesswoman. But her husband, Joe, was very deeply involved with the mob. 
Sugar Hill was funded by Levy initially. Nelson George tells the story of visiting their Englewood Cliff quote-unquote offices, which was kind of a cement block <laughs> building in an industrial park and seeing a lot of strange-looking Italian men sitting there. Yeah, what, what does not fit? What does not compute? Here's something I'm wondering, Richard, because Paola clearly works for certain people in the music industry. As music has changed in the last 15, 20 years and it's become increasingly digital, does Paola still exist in some strange mutated form today? I think it does. I'm not an absolute expert on this. I mean, when there were physical records, there were many, many ways of making extra profit such as selling records out the back door, the pressing plants, distributors skimming records. Levy was the king of selling so-called remainders, which were records that supposedly had failed to sell on their initial release and then were sold as cutouts. There was a lot of advantages to having a physical item that, you know, you could use. I mean, the Beatles even, Capital would say to their dealers, in order to get Beatles records, you have to take the rest of our catalog. And they would throw in Beatles records as an incentive for them to buy all the shit they couldn't sell otherwise. I think in the streaming world, there certainly is pay for play. Some of the streaming services actually say that. They'll say that this is a sponsored stream. Some don't. The big scandal in streaming really is the royalty situation where the labels get a blanket sum and they supposedly fairly apportioned among their artists, but the net effect is the big name artists get the lion's share of that money and there is no accountability as to is it really directly tied to the songs that are streamed. So Billy Joel made a point of including Paola in We Didn't Start the Fire. I'm wondering if you have any insights, Richard, on uh, Billy's treatment within the record industry. Any stories, any anecdotes about this? Well, like many performers at the beginning of their careers, Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen, I mean, people that were relatively sophisticated would sign these agreements because they were anxious to get an entree into the music business. And most of the time, these agreements were very much slanted against them in various different ways. So Billy Joel eventually was involved in a series of lawsuits involving his song publishing, his recordings, his management, his accountant, <laughs> uh, you know, just about every aspect of his career based on the fact that he had signed these onerous agreements. And of course, it's very hard for a court of law to sort of sort all these things out because on the one hand, the artist has signed the agreement and they're an adult usually, although not always. And the fact that the, the spirit of the agreement is one thing, but how it's executed is another thing. You, many of your listeners may be aware that Bruce Springsteen couldn't record for three years until he settled with Mike Appel, who was his original management, and Billy Joel went through similar machinations. But every artist suffered in the sense that you have to understand that promotional fees, recording costs, management costs were all charged against royalties. And that's how you came up with these odd situations where you'd have a number one record, million seller, and owe the record label money. 
And finally, Richard, to take us full circle back to the most tragic figure in this whole story, Alan Freed. As you say, he dies in 1965, um, probably of complications from alcohol abuse. He's only 43 years old. But then he goes through a posthumous rehabilitation later on because people look back at what he did for music, what he did for rock and roll. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as well. Yes, and the reason the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland is because that was where Freed became famous for his so-called Moondog radio show. I don't know that Freed is the general public or even even the general listener is that aware of him. The way Dick Clark remained really famous and a well-known and well-beloved figure, I think among historians of rock, because Freed was a champion of integration in music and supported early black stars of rock and roll. He has that reputation. That being said, like Morris Levy, Freed's hands were were not entirely clean. Let's just put it that way. Richard Carlin, I've so enjoyed your expertise and storytelling today. And what I have gleaned more than anything else is that to succeed in a corrupt environment, you have to have extra skills like a dab hand with making spaghetti or being able to play a strong shortstop game. It looks like, just to pat out your resume, you have to have some other craftsy skills. Richard Carlin, thank you so much for lifting the lid and talking us through all the things we have found underneath. Thanks. I enjoyed it. Katie, I'm going to give you a stark choice. Of all the nefarious characters that we met in the course of that episode, I would like you to choose which of the following you would rather be. Okay. A, the glute. (laughs) B, Swats Mulligan. Swats Mulligan. Was he the one that whipped up that spaghetti? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. What would be your special skill when you were trying to smooth over a little (laughs) mob tete-a-tete? Yeah, I mean, I would probably bring in some flapjacks, which I don't know if that really cuts it. Uh, What? You're bringing snacks. I'm bringing some some nice snacks, maybe some artisan snacks. It's not going to be enough, is it? It's not going to be enough. What would you do? Um, I think that my special... Uh, fairy dust would be just keeping the vibe up. I'm a vibe master. Yeah. I'm just kind of like keeping the fun going. My only concern with that is these people are used to vast amounts of money and excellent spaghetti from SWATs. <laughs> okay. It, so it's uh, I'd be a little underwhelming. Potentially. With my happy talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We shall see. Um, we will be back with a massive episode next week. In the meantime, if you would like another crowd podcast to listen to, why not try... Death of a rock star. Now, this is narrative storytelling, we hope, at its most immersive. It is the stories of the stars that we loved but lost too soon, the ones who rocked our stages and shook our stereos. Yeah, this is good stuff. There's an episode about Jim Morrison. There's one about Janis Joplin and even an artist that we have previously covered, Buddy Holly, plus our resonant writer and master of the pen, Tom Fordyce, even wrote some of them. I did, Katie. Yeah, if you'd like to give them a listen, just search for Death of a Rockstar wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want more fire, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Twitter and we're Spread That Fire. Should you fancy coming on the show as a guest or you think you can nominate an outstanding guest, do get in touch. We are at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Oh, we have such a big episode next week, it's Tom. It's huge. It's... Where are we going to start? Where are we going to end? <gasps> 
I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. Anyway, the episode is Kennedy. Massive. Massive. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.